When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode of Game Dev Unchained is sponsored by us. <laughs> That's right. This one is for all the students and new hires in the game development industry. We've compiled all of our career tips and secrets into a must-have guide called Game Dev Unchained Game Industry Survival Guide. This 10-chapter book breaks down the most important steps that you need to really get your career going. So if you love our podcast, you definitely want to check out our book. It's available today on Amazon. All right. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls all over the globe and the world, even though that's the same thing, this is one half of the amazing Game Dev Unchained podcast team. You know the voice, it's Larry Charles, and I bring with us two special guests. One goes by the name of Mr. Brandon Fam. Hey, what's up everybody? Piggybacking off Larry this week, this is Brandon Fam. I have brought the other special guest, Dion <laughs> Carico. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Good to see you. It's been a while. It has been way too long. Yes. For those who don't know. Like, really, yeah. Like, how long has it been? Since I've seen you personally, I think in person, I'd say about six years. Yeah, that's way too long. <laughs> Dion and I worked together uh, once before on a company we started called Go Play Games, making iPhone games. Dion, where do you work now? Why don't you tell the users about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I work at a board game company now called uh, Victory Point Games, and I've been there for about six years, starting literally in my boss's attic to, uh, yeah, to the office that we're in today. So yes. one hell of a journey. Yes, man. And we're excited to talk yeah. about board games and analog games today. Yeah, mm-hmm. like one of the biggest interests, and I think it's it's one of those things that kind of dwindle a bit after Monopoly and all those like famous board games, but suddenly there's been like a resurgence especially with Kickstarter and all these self-funding programs. You're, you're seeing Cards Against Humanity. You're seeing like these huge RPG type of board games coming out of Kickstarter campaigns with millions and millions of dollars backed up. Like There's a huge uh, need for it now, especially for social gathering. A lot of people are stuck behind their computer playing with their friends, but online. So that that person to person type of communication is very necessary, and I think people really want it now, especially with how good the board games are becoming. So. To, to kind of back up the statements that you're making, I uh, just a couple of days ago saw an article on Gamma Sutra, where they kind of did like a, a Kickstarter year in review for you know major games, yeah. like how are the different types of categories of games, and one of the interesting things is that it seems like tabletop games on Kickstarter is literally at an all-time high, which I remember the numbers now. Actually, no, I do. Uh, Kickstarter in 2016 brought in roughly about $100 million mm-hmm. in total Kickstarter campaigns, which is, like, for, for board games, that's that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. That's really good. So it's interesting kind of seeing board games take off. And if you asked me six years ago, if I was six or seven years ago, if I was going to work at a board game company, I'd say no. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are and it seems to be taking off. So, yeah. Do you mind giving us a little bit of background of, uh, you know, where you worked at a little bit more of Victoria point games and, and all that, just give an audience a little. Sure. So when I started at a, a Victory Point Games, whereas um, I think GoPlay was was starting to finally run its course, and um, at the time, Alan, my boss now, offered Larry a job, and Larry said, no, thank you, and he passed it along to me. And then I took it, and I just ran with it ever, ever since then. Um, when I first started at Victory Point, it was in, our, in my boss's attic, and we literally made everything by hand. Mm-hmm. I would take the counters that you're moving around. You'd literally be pressing them mm-hmm. every single day. So when I first started, that was it. It was, it was manufacturing. We, uh, with the capabilities that we had on hand, all we, all we could do was just build all day long. And from there it was me. And then it was another person. And then 
uh, we just started slowly adding more and more people. Um, as time has gone on, we've moved to out of house and the out of house thing for us is a relatively new thing about, a two years ago, we finally went to our first out of house print, which is going to talking to a, to China and ordering like a 1500, 2000, 5,000 unit print run. Uh, whereas before the one thing that we were trying to do was build everything in house in our own office. Uh, with our own printer, our own manufacturing, and just try to be completely independent. Um, but with the demand of board games and how much money we needed to bring in, we decided, well, maybe it's finally time we join everyone else and <laughs> go out of house and make that higher quality product. And it seems to be working so far. Do you prefer printing in-house or do you prefer printing out of house as a game company? As a game company? <clears throat> well, with the economy of scale from from a purely producer standpoint, <laughs> uh, I love going out of house because the the we can get back per unit. Your company can be much more sustainable. Where if we did it in house, there was no economy of scale, and it was much more expensive for something that's not quite the same quality physically. You know, and for a board gamer, that physical component is important. It's got to feel good mm. moving the, moving the components around. And you also said that you didn't anticipate going to work for a board game company six years ago. Now well, doing it, how do you feel? Do you still have the same reservations? Are you twice as excited? Or I guess, where are you? I guess I kind of still see board games as a more niche market than the current video game industry. Mm -hmm. That being said, I can totally see myself working in the board game industry for a while now. Oh, nice. Like we'll do it after being in it for six years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember when Alan uh, first announced Victory Point Games and even so Alan's a little background was all our teachers at some point at AI. One of the best teachers I ever had. Very motivational. Amen. Amen. Uh, very knowledgeable. He used to be a history teacher, so that helped a lot. <laughs> so his lessons are very educational. Um, and I remember he was really big on analog games. And at first, I didn't even know analog games were called analog games. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it, he, he showed us how to prototype with them before working on the computer. You know, the ideas of prototyping. It was very, very good lessons that I, I don't think uh, students nowadays really get a handle on. Not a lot, not a lot of teachers use things that you can pick up as a, a source to prototype your game. They usually just go straight to Unreal and stuff, but like the value is so good, right? You just take a bunch of paper clips and a cup here and there, whatever you can grab and instantly you can, you should be able to create something fun with your simple idea. And so right. When I saw Victory Point Games, I was like, yeah, man, there's something here. And this is before it got trendy, right? Before the Kickstarters and everything. Right. So when when did you guys start to – obviously, you guys knew what was there. Obviously, it was a, a company full of passion of analog games. And obviously, there's a niche, right? But mm -hmm. what I'm seeing is like towards mainstream, now it's becoming better and better. So I, uh, when did you guys during the beginning felt – that that tide turning a bit of how the industry is starting to appreciate analog games more at least the mainstream guys like we okay so when did we start noticing like oh my gosh people are actually buying things yeah yeah um i remember one point in time in our industry there's this board game that we have and it's kind of been a staple at our company it's called the darkest night mm. uh we just um we ran a, a kickstarter for the second edition of that back in may of last year and it, it did pretty well i think we got about 200 grand plus on that one um but i remember this is for the first edition of darkest night and just to back up what you said about alan he is absolutely absolutely passionately passionately driven mm -hmm. for board games like that is his life he is all about this so anyone that's played any of our games know that he literally puts his heart and soul in these projects um and one of those projects big time was Darkest Night because I remember he got this game and we had just had a, a meeting about it, talking about when we we're going to release it. And he stopped the office and he kind of had one of those trademark Alan Emmerich like heartfelt moments, right? <laughs> Where he sat there and he kind of looked around and said, you know, I have a feeling this might be one of those games that 
when they think of us, they'll think of us because of this game. And I think that's when we knew that we that we a kind of maybe latched on a little bit to the to the board game market, and then b that there was actually a pretty decent sized market out there for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of like one of the biggest things with indie titles, right? Analog or digital is just making being there before the trend starts. Like I feel like a lot of uh, developers that go indie often kind of just see what's what's happening. Like especially VR, right? VR being uh, uh, an example. Everybody's loving VR. Uh, even we on this podcast would say, you know, if you go indie, VR is the market to go indie. So it doesn't uh-huh. really start with an idea. It's more starting on. Oh, this is the trend. So if you want to latch on and capitalize on this trend, you kind of go in that direction. And that can be dangerous if you don't have a good idea. Right. Right. So it's so valuable that you guys kind of went there first, kind of just with the passion. Like, we like doing this. We know some people that like it. It's not mainstream, which is fine. (laughs) We have a market. And as long as we satisfy that market, you know, something may happen. Versus the others, like, especially now, analog games are kind of blowing up. Cards Against Humanity, that that what what is that one with the cartoonists who make all exploding cats or something? <laughs> that one oh, crazy exploding, exploding kittens. Yeah, yeah. There 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 is a big one. I can't remember the name from Cyanide and Happiness. That one did phenomenal. Also, yeah. I think uh, I think uh, the exploding kittens game has the record for. I think they got like ten million or something like they that. They got an insane amount of numbers. <laughs> For cards. For cards. cards, I mean, don't be fooled, though. Like, a lot of that money, I mean, 10 million bucks. Yeah, but a lot of that money went into the actual physical production. Yeah. Yeah. To make those two. But they're very happy, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they got to be dancing. Like, when they saw the 10 million, they had to have thrown a party. Yeah. Yes. So it was obvious. Yeah. I mean, those type of things are hard. So it's like someone right now who never had interest in analog games or board games or somewhat they play monopoly once in a while but it's not like genuine interest and they see this like huge market coming out of kickstarter especially the 2016 yearly revenues they're like oh we gotta make a board game now i feel like there's a lot of that happening both digitally and analog they just see what's the trend and they jump on it without a clear goal something yeah yeah what we'll see every once in a while too is um is there'll be like a, a video game will take off and they'll want to support it. And they'll try to bring more attention to their brand by making a, a board game off of it. Mm. Um, I think uh, an example of that, I don't know if that was their goal, but an example of that is the, uh, the dark souls board game. Mm. Uh, the, the Kickstarter that came out. I don't know if you guys were aware of that one or not, but that's another one that did phenomenally. And, and it was because of the, uh, yeah, the IP that was buying it. There's a lot of passionate dark souls people. And I guess it's kind of introducing board games to a whole group of people that wouldn't even think about it. So was that, that was that published by the same guys then the actual people who were behind it or was fan made or something? Oh shoot. I don't know. I, I think they, they, I can't remember the name of the company, but I know they licensed it out to a, uh, to a board okay. Game. They just licensed IP. So do you see that, that happening a lot more? Uh, where? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You see, you see a lot of that. One of the big company is, uh, that's doing that as a company called fantasy flight. And they work a lot with, uh, yeah. with a lot of different IPs like star Wars. They do a ton of star Wars IPs. There's a, a card game that came out that came out recently called Star Wars destiny and it is selling hotcakes. You can't find it anywhere. Mm. <laughs> Sounds and, like it's doing better than their iPhone game. <laughs> <laughs> What's their iPhone game? Which one's the fantasy flights? Oh no. The, they have a new star Wars game that came out kind of. Yeah. Oh like yeah. I played that ish. Right. <laughs> It was it was fun. I, I played it, but then I stopped because I was kind of obsessing over it a little bit because I had to get the next free thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. So is, is that one not doing that well, or? Oh no, I just couldn't resist the joke opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's doing all right. It's like probably you know. top top ten or something. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember I played that. And it's it's fun. But, but to, to go to a fantasy flight games, they work. Yeah, IPs for them. Like they're getting a lot of really solid IPs with really solid game design. They have Star Wars. Uh, they've done Lord of the Rings games. 
uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, they had the Warhammer 40k license up until recently, until I think Games Workshop decided to do their own thing again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a a lucrative side of the business? I think that that's something that Victory Point could aspire to do, or is what that is not that? so much? I wouldn't, uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't mind finding the right IP and then associating some an, an excellent game with it. I think that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we would have to convince Alan that that's the way to go. Uh, gotcha. Because Alan is is very proud of the fact that we are as independent as we possibly can be. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Yeah, because we release a game that is that is fun. The release a game because it's fun, not because it has this huge license attached to it. You know, he always says a game should stand on its own merits, and an IP shouldn't change that. There's a lot of honor that in that too. There, there, there is a lot of honor in that. That being said, I still would love to throw an awesome IP on top of the <laughs> Definitely doesn't yeah. hurt. Uh, just to see. Maybe there's a good game idea, and then you guys have an IP that might be perfect for it. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. some, sometimes that's the pitch. It's like, oh, you know what would be great? Let's go ask. Yeah, go ask these guys and see. Yeah, because this feels like it would be a, I don't know, this title. So, Dion, I uh, represent a lot of game designers, and if I'm thinking about releasing a board game, is w- would it be worth coming to you guys to say, hey, I have a pitch for this game. Would you guys evaluate it for publishing? Is that something that you guys do? or Are you, are you sending us an idea or an actual prototype? I, will, I would show up with a prototype, not with just a document. Like, we would play it, and, you know, we could drink some beers and have some fun, but a lot of people who are game developers, you know, talk about making board games, and I've seen a lot, but they don't take it past just making something, you know, like a prototype. They don't know about the marketing or the business end. So is that something that you guys could fulfill? Dude, if you have, like, if you're Joe developer or Joe designer, and you... Well, not literally walk into our office, but if you come to us and say, hey, I, I have this prototype and I want to show it to you, we have an open door policy. You can absolutely bring it to us. And we will absolutely take a look at it. Um, do you remember uh, Nate, Nate Hansen, GoPlay? Yes, I do. He, he works with us also, and he's, the, um, he's another guy that bleeds cardboard. All right. Shout out to Nate. Yeah, shout out to Nate. And uh, so what happens is someone brings in their prototype and we will take your prototype and we will look at it. And uh, it either goes to Alan or it goes to Nate and they mull over your prototype and then they give feedback back to it. So it's either we like it and we want to work with it more or it needs some work. And, and here's why. Mm. Yeah. Has so anyone yeah, sh- can come talk to us? Has anyone showed up with a day one home run? Yes. I can't remember any of the games off the top of my head, but we've had some games that have come in and said, well, let's just push this through. Let's put let's put some art on it. Let's make it look real nice and shiny. And then, yeah, release it. The uh, game developers out there, designers or not, you know, if you have a wonderful prototype of a game, Victory Point will take it. And this isn't a shameless plug. They're actually doing it. This isn't a commercial. They're legit. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, just uh. talk to us. I know, like, again, to go on one of the things Alan's proud about, it's that uh, he, he has a very open door policy. The people who, even if you haven't done anything, if you don't have a, a track history or anything, he will look at your game and he wants to give people that opportunity to get into the door. Like it ties very much into him being a teacher. He wants to give you your shot. Okay. And my last question on behalf of Game Develop, is there such thing as too many no's for Victory Point games? If I've showed up five times with different games, can I show up with a sixth one? I see. So, like, okay. So, if you've submitted like three or four, not solid. Sure. Yes. I think we don't have it like a standard after we say no to you so many times. But there's kind of like this unspoken thing. Once we've gotten enough bad submissions, <laughs> then like you know, we start saying think thanks but no thanks. Gotcha. You know. Yeah. Granted, we'll tell you what we don't like about it and what we suggest on how to change it, but. Mm. Yeah, after a while, yeah, we do have to work on things we know we're going to move forward. Understood. And I think it's awesome that you're willing to accept submissions. So that's all I really wanted to ask on behalf of game developers out there. Yeah, send us stuff. We'll work with you. No problem. So uh, what's the usual dev cycle from prototype to to a finished product on a particular game? Like how, how much does it range? 
Oh, you see, that all depends on, on the scope of the game because it could be a simple card game where after maybe like a month or two, we have something. Uh, but more often than not, we're looking at about once it's in-house, once it's done, I'll say anywhere from uh, on the development side. I mean, we're still looking at about maybe a half a year max, maybe less, depending on how much work needs to be done. And then where I come in, uh, we sit, that's when we ship it off to the printer, and that can be another, at least another 90 days. If everything goes smooth, maybe we'll, we'll get it in 90 days. So we're talking about from, from solid game that needs very little tweaking to end, it's still like about nine months to a year before we'll see it on the shelves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it ever, is it ever like a, a target that you guys try to obtain as far as analog goes, or is it just getting to the market? Uh, how how do you get in front of customers uh, usually when you have something? Is it through <laughs> online broadcasting and it's ordering online, or is it on the shelf? Like, how exactly is that that track when you have a finished product? For us, I think that's something that has slowly changed as we've grown as a company. Mm-hmm. Because back when I, when I started, the answer was get as many games. Like we get a lot of submissions. Let's get those games out there as fast as possible. We used to have a uh, we used to have a, a release schedule where Alan's goal was every two weeks we release a new board game, mm. and that was hectic and that was crazy. And people were starting to tear <laughs> their, their their hair out of their their hair out of their heads a little bit. Um, so the answer that one was announce it on the website, announce it on Facebook, mm-hmm. get it out there, send it to reviewers. Uh, but with us kind of growing as a company, it's it's more it's more find the game that is legitimately fun, find out how to get it to reviewers, have them review it, build up interest, and once we have people talking about it, see if we can either push it and sell it on our storefront, sell it at other retailer stores, distribution. And if it's, if we think it's big enough, we'll, we'll shove it out there for a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So the, the reviews are usually the one that gets the, because I'm I'm guessing there's a lot that goes on the market. And so if I'm a a fan of analog games, I, what's the site that I usually go for? You want to go to boardgamegeek.com. That's the biggest one. That's, that's the big one. BGG. Like it's it's like the big one. It's like I'm, I'm not joking. It's like the hub that you go to. Yeah, where it's like I know with video games, like there's I know there's several different big sites you go to, but for board games, it's boardgamegeek.com. Yes. So is this where the retailers actually check out too? If you ever wanted to get it at, so if I were ever to want to get my thing on Target uh, on Walmart, like where, like how does that conversation get into play? Is it something you just literally call them up <laughs> and say, Hey, that's a, um, well. yeah, that, that, that's something that like, I, we're not quite there yet. We, we know, we kind of know the guidelines that we need to get into those stories. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of times that's, that's uh that's dealing with uh, I'm back and on that distribution because right. a lot of time target or Walmart more than anything else, what they look at is they look at the, uh, the shelf price and then the shelf space, how much, how much space is this actually going to take up? How much revenue can they get back from that unit? And then once that meets that standard goal, then they say, okay, will this actually sell at our store? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. No, that totally answers your question. Well, the thing is I always go into retail, right? And I, I, I always look at the analog section and you, you get your normal stuff Right. I'm starting to see this section where you, you, uh, over the past year, I saw on Kickstarter campaigns, you know, part of the $100 million revenues that they gathered on Kickstarter last year. And that section is starting to grow. And I see more and more people just hanging around in that particular section. So I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating that Target notices that they're selling well and that they, they know that. You know, maybe their analog games are doing better than the digital because digital games, as we all know, people are buying it digitally. <laughs> like I right. think they see that it's shrinking over there on that side. But the analog games, I've just been noticing people just hanging out there more. It's usually sold out. A lot of the card games are sold out. So I don't know if they're actively trying to look 
for Kickstarter campaigns or, or wherever board game geek or something, because I think they know that the trend is happening. Yeah. I, I don't quite know for sure, but I bet they have someone that knows that market and yeah. they kind of, and they can kind of keep an ear out for that. And uh, yeah, I know a lot of it is on the back end with distributors that push it directly to places like Walmart and target and, Barnes Noble, which I love going to Barnes Noble and walking around their board game stuff because they have a lot of things that I wouldn't even think would be there, but mm-hmm. they got to be selling well or else they wouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, it's not like they're selling books or anything. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're. I hate seeing them kind of closed down. The way yeah, they are. yeah, yeah. Do you know they closed down the one off of um, it's Metro Point on? Yeah. Just yeah, that that makes me sad. We uh, I think we go played in that one a couple of times. Yeah, did we? I'm sure you guys did. I mean, it's yeah. like one of those okay. best places to to hang out. That's the thing, man. They need to. Like I was talking, I won't, I won't spend too much time on it. GameStop has the same issue, right? They're not selling games, right? What they have are, are these great spaces where people can hang out. So Barnes and Noble is the same. Like you just need to make it more like a co-working space. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. That's exactly what a lot of, uh, board look like mom and pop board game shops, uh, the friendly local retailer, FLGS friendly local game store. Mm-hmm. They make it very much like a come here and play with your friends at this board game shop. And so they're trying to build that culture around those individual stores. And yeah, I hope it works out because those little mom and pop shops are important to the board game industry. Yeah. 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 They have just shove all the books to the corners, right? <laughs> just set up tables in the middle mm-hmm. because that's what people like. You know, people go around the malls and, and stuff and then they see a crowd gathering every weekend doing something at Barnes and Noble. It's it's cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll, hang we'll, we'll, out. I'm telling you, man, I'm going to solve all these guys' problems if you guys are listening. <laughs> it's so stupid, man. They have such great spaces, but they keep trying to push books in the nook. It's like, shut the f up. <laughs> what are you talking about? You just I, I admitting defeat. Were, yeah, I think that's what they were trying to do by having like a Starbucks in there. They're so old. <laughs> yeah, the Starbucks help. But right. the Starbucks is what's what's like the only thing that's working there, right? People. That's what I said. I bet more people are upset that there's no Starbucks there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, they, they don't have Starbucks they anymore. Be- they took all the Starbucks. The whole thing closed. Oh, and yeah. the Starbucks was inside. Oh, for for the oh, yeah, I was saying for that particular Barnes and Noble. Yeah, for that one. Yeah. I don't know, man. These guys are so blind. They literally don't go in the stores and see what people hang out there for and ask people. I think if they just ask questions, people will like, yeah, I like hanging out here to do some work sometimes. Oh, okay. You know what's really interesting is that a lot of Barnes & Noble is losing a lot of sales, and it's it's, uh, it's books and board games uh, to Amazon, mm-hmm. direct sales to Amazon, right? But Amazon is actually starting to open up brick-and-mortar shops now. Like they're they're going full reverse. I think they're opening up a, a bookstore in like in New York, like downtown Manhattan. A bookstore? Where, I think where are they doing it actual, differently? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's just that they have the Amazon logo, so people know that they can go buy the books at Amazon. They better do something good. Because <laughs> right. I know they have the kiosk for the food stuff now. That seems interesting. Yeah, it's like a, it's just like an airport security banis- a gate thing. <laughs> right. But they just place it in a grocery store, and so you just go in and go out, and I guess it IDs you without you having to wait in line. I'd be worried about spending $400 on one Kiwi because I keep on putting it back and forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know how they're figuring it. I'm, I'm sure with their books, they're going to do something special because, yeah, all these pro- – like everything that I'm seeing with these stores – with the trend, it's all about hanging out with people physically. Like, why would you want to compete with Amazon selling books by selling books? It's not going to work. What Amazon can't do is physically having people next to each other and talking about the book or like, do they even have that? Sorry, we're going off track here, but do they? No, like, it actually does kind of relate to something a little bit. I uh, I know there was one that opened up kind of recently, but board game cafes are increasingly becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. I don't know if they have it a lot around here, but I know there's a few that are popping up throughout the uh, the states. LA has some. Yeah, it has them. Yeah, just just a, a board game cafe where you go. You go there and you order a coffee and rent a game. You play to hang out with your friends. That's an idea right there, man. You guys need to hit up Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's not a bad idea. Carry our carry our games across. Yeah, like make you know, like make. You may have actually struck something that I might bring up at work tomorrow. Yeah, well, I'm all full you of know? ideas, man. Just, just open up <laughs> and open up your ears. I'm about to give you some gems here. Just make some furniture right. out of your board games, right? Like a table, right? right. Uh-huh. Tabletop, sell that furniture. Okay, <laughs> to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> because coffee shops, man, are like the best places yeah. for board games. I'm surprised they don't. I mean, if you went to boba places and stuff, if you guys don't know what boba places are, just Google it. But literally, they have analog games and stuff, you know, tucked really? in a cupboard. And they encourage people to hang out and drink their drinks. But I'm very surprised Starbucks hasn't picked up on this. Uh, like having yeah. board games lying around where people customers can play there's too many people writing screenplays that probably complain about the noise <laughs> Stupid. Right. but like yeah no there, there's got to be games that you can sell to them that's that works with their brand and their kind of i guess aura they want to give off yeah you know i mean the goal with these physical I'm- places is just getting you to stay there as much as possible i mean starbucks don't want to just sell you coffees and see you leave, man. They encourage people to stay there. And board game complements that very well. I mean, I just want to see that blow up more. Yeah, I'm literally going to bring this up to my marketing guy tomorrow. You're welcome. <laughs> you are welcome. So we have another question here. Uh, so, you know, Victory Point Games have... Are you guys ever thinking of going digital? Or is it going to be analog games? You know, turning any of your board games into a real game? Talking to people? Getting that going? We, we tried kind of making our own mobile games in the past, and it just didn't work out. Like, mm-hmm. that was kind of my, my focus for a while. We were kind of, for, for us, we were stretching ourselves too thin. We weren't able to do both of them at once. And, yeah, our poor programmer, Logan, <laughs> just just stressed out. Because it was, like, it, like towards the end, like, especially at the end, it was all on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we are to do anything digital at this point out, we'd find someone to contract out with to make like a, um, like a, like a mobile app or maybe something for like, I don't know, PlayStation plus. Have you guys, uh, thought of doing AR stuff? Like board games are kind of perfect for that. Isn't it? Augmented reality stuff. No, no, we haven't. We haven't thought about that. I mean, we've man, I'm like you gems here for your marketing guy, man. I'm telling you. Here, boom, Grant, boom. Here's another one. <laughs> well, you see it sometimes, right? I think Microsoft Hololens or whatever they were demoing a sort of half-ass board game, but like right. I, I would love to see like a real intense type of thing going on, and it's a board game that you buy, but then you have all That's these so- cards that actually pop up AR stuff. I, I guess for, for us that the, the real debate would be how much would it cost to make that work? You know, what, what, what type of investment is needed to make that a reality? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's like a whole different team. <laughs> a whole different team. And, and board games relative to video games are dirt cheap to make. Yeah. You know, so, so to go to a board game company and say, do do AR, we're like, holy crap, how are we going to have the funds for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not ready yet. Those AR sets are <laughs> like, four thousand dollars to buy one like one of those microsoft followings yeah some something crazy but the phones yeah. are able to do that i'm just yeah, wondering. The phones are pretty close I samsung i was actually thinking samsung vr how would you do that no well like yeah. even your regular phone though you can do ar stuff yeah you just need a chip on the cards to, to activate or something yeah i i think we would have to rely on a on a dev house to come to us and say, Hey, we like this game. Yeah. We want to change it. Yeah. This. There's a lot of, yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of time and resources that we, we as a board game company would probably be better spent on, uh, the expansion for that game or the next upcoming game that we know is going to bring in money. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's the average, uh, customer. I mean, 
you know, with, with digital games, usually mm-hmm. around Christmas, you buy one or two games. I think the number when Emmerich was teaching us was like three to four games a year, maybe, maybe two games a year that a person would buy. With analog games, does that number kind of differ? You know, I um, I don't know. I don't have access to that. Yeah, so sorry, I don't, I don't have an answer for you for that one. Because it could be like there's a lot of casual people that like this is the game that they get for the year. Um, but what we kind of see a, a lot, like at least with us, because I know we're kind of have a lot of hardcore board gamers that play, but there's people that just love to build their collection to the point where they actually have a few board games that they haven't opened yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because they haven't had the chance to sit down and play it yet. Can you tell if uh, if you get a lot of repeat sales from those guys? Just either the same game or different games. Just they're just a fan of what you guys produce. Oh yeah, we definitely have some fans that are dedicated to Victory Point games and love buying Victory Point games. There you go. So yeah, we, we definitely have those guys. Yeah, but as far as like how much everyone buys, I don't quite have access to that. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, man. Like I see analog games kind of solving all the digital sales problem it's kind of like the opposite problem <laughs> like the digital sales like i said GameStop's closing best buy is dying like no one's best buy i feel like they're they're on their last legs i'm surprised they're still up to be honest there's, there's yeah for years now you've been hearing best buy closing down i mean no one buys tvs from them anymore you just go to costco now or even just stay on yeah. amazon well, I mean, people still want to go and pick up like their uh, like their Xbox One or their PS4 discs, yeah. Yeah. right? The shops, yeah. But even then, you could order that through Amazon, also. Amazon's taking everybody's business. Oh, how dare they! <laughs> you, you can't beat their model, man. They they said for years they just break even just long enough so that the other industries close down. And so right when they close down, like Barnes & Noble, they open a bookstore. <laughs> that's what, <laughs> that's their is, whole strategy. Is that the model? That's, that's what they do. Break, yeah. break even until you win? Yeah. And then oh, it was like, you know what? <laughs> For years they argue, Barnes & Noble, no one wants to buy books in your bookstore. <laughs> and then they're like, all right, now they're, they're gone. Let's open a bookstore. You know, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm interested to see how they're doing it differently. What's that? I, I want to see how they're doing it differently because... Obviously, they have a different way of doing it. They, they Dude, Air Prime. Air Prime, yeah. Did you guys yeah. hear about that plan? How they having like a like a drone, like a blimp? That was like one of their ideas. They have a blimp full of all this stuff. And so when you order anything, it just airdrops. <laughs> with the drone. Like that's an actual idea they had. I don't know if it's in progress or whatever, but that's something I read. So they had the blimp of- lying around. Yeah. The it's Kaiser's slip is just floating to drop off its goods. Okay. Oh, yeah. They they have enough money. That's crazy. Oh, dude, they do. They really do. They've done well. They've done well for themselves, yeah. I guess is an understatement. So, anyways, going back to it, where do you see <laughs> right. the industry going? I, I, I mean, we, we talk about how, how it's trending and mainstream now. People are mm-hmm. uh, getting it. So where do you see the next five years analog exploding in what sector? How next, next in the next few years, man, you know, some of the reason that some of the articles I've read about why board games have kind of taken off the way they have is because of uh, the gamers, I guess, like myself of my age, they're grown up they're they're having family, they're having kids and it's the board game that's kind of bringing everyone together. And that's what, that's what everyone's playing. I think as long as we have, that element that board games aren't going anywhere and might actually increase in sales as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I've noticed specifically with us is that we don't, we, we notice that we can't really sell kids games. Kids games don't do well through us, mm-hmm. but games geared towards people, my age, people in their twenties, thirties, forties, those are taken off. So I think we'll be seeing, Grown up games, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I think they're going to be around for a while. 
what kind of get, kid games now that, that are mainstream? Like, I only know like the old ones, but what, what's a recent one that's been really good with kids? Oh man, I have that answer, just not right now. <laughs> so it is like <laughs> there are new games that are coming out for kids that parents are buying from, right? Well, yeah, I'm sure there, there's plenty of educational games that, that are out there, but mainly what a lot of parents seem to be looking for is something they can play that they feel is interesting that they can play along with. They can introduce their child so they can both sit there and kind of bond over that. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the board game version of Minecraft. Yeah. Something like that. So it's like usually an IP driven type of board game to sell the kit. Yeah. Like something, uh, something like Adventure Time related. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, which yeah, so tying video games to um, to IPs. Have you guys heard about the um, uh, the League of Legends board game? No, I haven't heard of it. it. Came out. It's a board game called Mechs versus Minions, and when it came out, it was a huge splash, at least for, from our perspective in the game industry. Because yeah, they did. I can't. I don't quite know the, the the gameplay elements of it, but essentially they took like monster waves coming at you, and riot just came in and they kind of rocked everyone's world for a little while with uh with Max versus Minions coming out. Like if you if you want an introduction to board games, that's the one. And you're an avid video game player. See if you can get your hands on this one, which you can only buy it directly through them. By the way, oh. <laughs> yeah. Last I checked. So was it like a licensed out type of the deal, or did Riot design? They just itself? made it, and they pushed it. Yeah, they just made it themselves. Yeah, all themselves. It's uh, yeah, never. Well, word word of the wise, it's expensive. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. But what I yeah. like about how the analog game industry is opening up, like I'm always loving the idea that the uh, game developer has having more choices. So even mm-hmm. as, as an analog, you're, you're in there with especially 3D printing now. You know, if you're a character artist, you can 3D print your characters and as pieces or or make some board game elements or designs. As a 3D modeler, I think you can, I don't know. The, I'm pretty sure you can make a, a pretty decent uh, chunk of cash uh, being a 3D modeler trying to work for the board game industry making making minis mm-hmm. because yeah, that's actually it. Instead of having to sculpt it now, you just model it, ship the model off to the printer and bada bing, bada boom, you got to, you got to model. I say it like it's that easy, but we were, <laughs> we're we were, we were making a minis for, uh, for darkest night, mm-hmm. uh, our board game. And that was a, that was a, to put it kindly, it's been a learning process. <laughs> I love your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> so how much it's of a, the 3D printing helped yeah. you guys the recent years with with all that production stuff? It was key. It was absolutely key for us to do it. Um, because, yeah, we had the model, so we turned it off to the printer, and we immediately, before even going into production and just losing maybe thousands and thousands of dollars on these models, we were able to figure out what the problems were and then tweak it and then resubmit it and tweak it and then resubmit and then tweak yeah, so it saved us. I would say I would say it saved us quite a bit uh, time and frustration, at least financially. Yeah, I bet. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those mm-hmm. things that being able to produce yourself at, in some capacity, and then when it's ready and perfect, you can mass produce it and not worry about it anymore. Because what's right. frustrating is just the testing phase and not seeing it work, and it takes weeks to get the, back. The, yeah. yeah, and that that's been a fun conversation with with the bosses too. Why is it taking so long? Well. You know, just because, like, yeah, you said the iteration process that you, you have to go through. Mm. But just like anything else, the more you do it, the better you are at it, right. the less it you got to go through. So, speaking of developing products yourself, how about uh, testing? Do you guys enjoy just playing around with your own gains in that whole process? Is it always frustrating? I know the financial... And, you know, the, the failures and stuff can be frustrating, but I'm sure at some point playtesting your own game is pretty fun. Or does it well, just that, work right now? The, the, the playtesting aspect is probably the funnest part, I got to say. 
uh, I'm, I'm very much on the back end production side of things. So I don't get to touch that very often, but when I do, I swear I'm like a kid in the candy store. I actually get to sit down and play with the designers, you know? Um, yeah. And most games go through a very vigorous play testing process. Um, especially by Ellen and especially by Nate. Mm. Yeah. So if, if a game comes out from VPG, it's got the Allen and Nate stamp of approval. Every game that comes out especially has the Allen stamp of approval. And hopefully it has the Nate stamp also. That's worth saying something. I need to send you guys some games. <laughs> so you can all can write you back and see. He'll be like, it's good, but here's everything I saw. <laughs> Larry, did you pay attention in college? <laughs> <laughs> right. Why am I getting F's? It was just a suggestion. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, yeah. Alan, Alan was starting a victory point about the same time we were doing go play. Yeah, I remember that. I remember sitting in that that um that Borders bookstore. Rest in peace. Yeah, meeting up with them. Yeah. Well, you know, if it wasn't for Alan Emmerich, there would be no go play games. Yeah, he's the he was the first investor. <laughs> he's a he can be yeah he can he can be very stubborn with the games that he's working on with the titles that he's working on he can also be a very very generous man yes sir and I've, I've come to appreciate that over the years what's the best part about working underneath someone like him uh the best part the best yeah. part about working well hmm what is the best part I guess when it's time to sit down and play a new game, he'll come just grab people and it's it's time. Just come sit down, play test this. We have a new submission. Let's take a look at it. I love how open he is. Mm-hmm. I love how open that the company is probably of all. Let me put it this way. Uh, I used to work in the video game industry, right? On the video game side of things. And I was very used to being, you know, don't say anything. Keep hush hush. We don't want any spoilers going out there. And then I came over to this board game company and like the exact opposite was true. I kind of lost my mind a little bit. I was freaking out just because we weren't, we didn't care about keeping secrets mm-hmm. um, about, about our IPs and stuff like that. I mean, a little bit we do, but not nearly to the extent of a, of a, of a digital video game. And at the beginning, that was a huge frustration because I didn't know what I was going to say that was going to get us in trouble. But as time gone, has gone by, I've kind of appreciated that openness. Is there a lot of competition between analog developers? Do you guys have a nemesis that you guys <laughs> hate on every day? Oddly enough, no. Not the, from from what I see, no. I think that the board game industry it's larger. It's pretty damn large for the board game side of things, but more often than not, people are very very willing to help each other and, and work out with each other because. If we do better, they do better. The bigger our industry gets, the more we all, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you know a, like a, a good way of, I guess, dealing with freight, or if you know a good printer overseas that you can work with, people generally will talk about that and go back and forth and help each other out. Which, again, is is very... It's very nice to feel and see, you know, mm-hmm. no punks you got to deal with. Well, is then, uh, is piracy or copycatting a, a worry in analog as it is for, for digital games? <laughs> uh, no, it's actually when I first started, this is one of the things I lost my mind over. When we would release a game, we would take the rule book and put it online for everyone to download. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, so like, why are we like, my, my immediate thought is, why are we giving away our game? Why would you do that? But what what it comes down to is that that's something that the, the customers come to enjoy. It's like they read the, the rule book, they kind of preview the game to see if they would like it. And if they like it, they order it. Mm. Yeah. So piracy, not really. Someone stealing your idea. Well, I guess you got to keep that an eye out for that every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Or like taking a game and then just slapping a different skin on it. That makes sense. I mean, it's not like Monopoly is scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're doing fine. They're doing fine. Mm-hmm. 
so like what 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 is uh is there like a I guess selling online in certain type of games it, it depends, but is there like a certain threshold of too much when you're paying for an analog game, like when you're pricing it especially? Um, the the general rule of thumb is is um as long as you have the the market to buy it, the more units you can get, the better. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, the 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 larger your your uh, your print run, the the cheaper each unit is. Okay. So yeah, and one of the dealings that you have with the printer is you want to know what the price breaks are, like how many units do I have to purchase before you take a buck off or this becomes cheaper. Right. And so it really becomes a game. How many units can I order to make the unit as cheap as possible without breaking the bank? Right. Yeah. So yeah, you can absolutely buy way too many. You guys these days. Um. Do I want to give that number? Okay, never mind. (laughs) If you can't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's the that's that's my video game industry coming in and saying like I don't know if you should say that, Dion. But um, yeah, it's a it's it's a lot. It's not a lot as some of the other bigger guys that are out there. Like I know, I know, like Fantasy Flight or a lot of like Cool Mini or Not's another one that does very well on Kickstarter. They have to order like at least in the tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you guys have had you know your own success on Kickstarter. Like I've seen repeat success. It's it's like you guys are the Kickstarter oracles, in my opinion. <laughs> I had to, I remember having to fight pretty hard to convince Alan to, to use Kickstarter also. Oh, really? There was a struggle because uh, it was pretty new then, right? When you were first. Yeah, it was pretty new. I think I was watching, uh, uh, God, was it Tim Schafer's company? Double Fine. Double Fine. Double Fine yeah. I was, I was, yeah, I was watching Double Fine and how Double Fine was doing and how people were just so excited to, to pledge for him or to pledge to uh, uh, Obsidian for Pillars of Eternity. You know, my immediate thought was, oh, my God, this could work for us, too. Um, but it took some convincing. And then after a while, we were able to uh, start doing Kickstarters. And the interesting thing about Kickstarters is it's kind of become like the go-to spot for board gamers to come see, like, what is new and upcoming. Like, if you're not like a uh, – I keep on bringing up Fantasy Flight. But if you're not a Fantasy Flight or a uh, or an Asthma Day, which is another big board game company mm-hmm. – um, one of the ways that you get the word out is by going through Kickstarter and you try to get people built up and excited about the Kickstarter to come look at your, to look at your product, because that's how you will be able to afford uh, the print run to get your game out in the market. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just seeing that number ahead of time helps a lot. It's like how many people actually want to buy it. Okay. Let's print this much. Yeah. It's, it's really good at giving you a realistic view on how many units you can really sell in your game too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Kickstarter is more perfect for analog. Digital nowadays is kind of unless like you guys start having our problem, which is like these what who, who makes uh, the big ones? Parker Brothers? Is it Parker Brothers? Milton Bradley. Parker Milton Brothers. Bradley. Like, let's say Milton yeah. Bradley just started to go to Kickstarter. He's like, "Hey guys, we have this idea." <laughs> it's like, "Shut the fuck up!" I mean, that's what's happening yeah. with with us right now with digital games. Really. Yeah, yeah you, you hear these like ex Capcom executives uh-huh. come in asking for two hundred thousand dollars for their triple A million dollar project, oh, and so that's yeah. and people have been screwed because of course they don't deliver right, they don't have to. First of all, there's no penalty, and second, um, it's that's unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a skewed view of what game development costs are, and so the people who are generally yeah. need the money or people who generally want to pay and help developers it's either overpriced it's like well we just paid capcom two hundred thousand dollars for a two-year development what do you guys need this much more for? It's, <laughs> it's polluted now so I, I, I that's part of the reasons why at least for 2016 you, you were talking about analog games on the rise digital games right. have been dipping ever since it yeah. premiered it's a yeah yeah, I, I I've noticed that too. A lot of big names asking for money for their company. I think it was one of the big ones. I can't remember the guy's name, but he did the Mighty Number no. Nine. Inafune. Oh, uh, Inafune. Yeah, yeah. Was that a um? How did like how did that one? I think it came up? out all buggy though. It came, it came out, out, out eventually. Eventually, yeah, it was really delayed. 
but people use it as a marketing platform. They don't really need the funds. So they, uh, they underprice it with 20 triple a developers on the project, which is ridiculous. And then, right. Uh, they delay it whenever they want to. And then it doesn't come out as expected. So that's been happening a lot. So, yeah. So like this, I, I've, I've yeah. seen that. But I, but I, I take like from my perspective because I've been in, in in the cardboard world for so long that I was under the impression that they needed this money to stay afloat as a company. And then once they got that Dude. money, they got the exact opposite. It's exactly, ah! No, so they've been like messing with the Kickstarter, which sucks, right? Like Larry and I discuss this all the time. Yeah. It's a place for for two guys or three guys who want to make a game, and they're trying to find an audience and can deliver. Yeah, it's being polluted by the AAA guys. So, yeah, which uh, they um, which fig well fig has come around since then, right? Is is that a bit of like an answer to that? To it that, helps. Larry can probably comment it better than I do, but sure, fig is actually more honest. I feel like it's the halfway point because ahead of time, the customers know that they can either pre-purchase the game or they can up the ante financially and actually become an investor or a backer in a game and get revenue or excuse me, get return on investment potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. If some unknown game is promising investor returns and you don't see it happening, it, it hurts fig, but actually big games going to fig in my opinion makes more sense because from day one, the person giving you money kind of believes in the marketability of the product without having to be sold on it. Right. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of looked, because the thing is just working in a board game company, you kind of get hooked in a Kickstarter. Like mm-hmm. that, that's your that for your big titles, at least for us, that's your bread and butter. And so you can't help but look at Fig, and I think they've priced it high enough to where the people that would throw money at it, like you're throwing like a thousand or two thousand dollars down. Yeah. And as an investor, one of the risks you you go in is just is uh, knowing that you might not get your money back. Yeah. And I think the price of entry, they've done it high enough to where you're not going to get like 16 year old kids that threw 50 bucks down demanding, you know, $500 back or, you know, mm-hmm. riches. Yeah. They solve a few problems too. Like there was just a, uh, there was no policing on Kickstarter. So you don't know yeah. when a good game is coming out or whatever, because anyone can submit on any day. So fake at least one month per game kind of helps give them some breathing room. Yeah. They've, yeah, they've, they've tried, they, they've tried to put some more accountability on people. I know that if you get fulfilled, like I, I'm pretty sure Kickstarter passed something that said, if you just take this money and run, you can be held accountable. And hey. yeah, and I don't know if there's any direct, if I have any proof of that, but I, I feel like they've, they followed through on that a couple of times mm-hmm. or a few times. I hope knock on wood. Um, yeah, there is a, there is a huge trust issue, uh, less so with, with with board games because you can you can see the integrity of the people that you're working with that that really shines through. Um, but I know that was a huge issue on the video game side of things. Mm-hmm. Also, well, Mister Dion, mm-hmm. if you look down at your handy stopwatch that we sent you last week, you'll notice that we've been podcasting for one hour. Oh my God! Yeah, how about that? So at this time, Brandon and I are going to be quiet and we're going to let you talk directly to the audience to promote, broadcast, or draw attention to something that you're involved in or that you're really excited about. Mr. Dion Carrico or Car Chase Mode, the floor is now yours. All right. Well, one of the things I'm really excited about, and I'm not I'm not just saying that because I worked on it, it's actually a lot of fun. It's this uh it's this expendable card game that we released. Uh if you've ever played Magic. It's a little release. It's not out yet, but if you ever played Magic the Gathering or any of the uh, living card games out there, uh, we just finished a, finished a Kickstarter for a game called Twilight of the Gods. And it did pretty well on Kickstarter. We got about $76,000, and we're going to be opening up pre-orders for that hopefully this week. And please go out and check it out. I think it's awesome. I'm getting a, at least one copy for it when it comes out. And <laughs> You know what? You should really check it out too. It's a good game. It's a good game. Um, Chris Cluey, if you know who he is, was the uh, the lead designer on that project too. 
Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Dion is here with us by way of Victory Point Games. And shout out to everyone at Victory Point Games holding it down for the cardboard warriors out there. We appreciate what you do. We love hearing the sound of dice clack on tables. And we're glad that you get to bring that to households all across the world. But since I'm the only one talking right now, my name is Larry Charles. I'm going to say good night. This is Brandon Fan. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Oh, am I supposed to say something? Hi, I'm Dion. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Take it easy, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.